What's going on? Welcome to the show. I want to welcome one of the great personalities and analysts in the sports world as we have the great Chris Broussard. Chris Broussard, how are you doing today, man? I'm great, man. How are you? Doing pretty well. Enjoying your Saturday? Oh, yeah. Definitely. It's, it's, I always enjoy a day off. Yeah. <laughs> as much as I like sports. <laughs> Knowledge, inspiration, and nurturing through God. Yep, that's that's what the King Movement stands for. It's a national men's movement. And uh, we're just trying to help men become, you know, all that God created them to be. That's right, and that's why you're a true inspiration out here. But you go to high school, you go to college, and you're actually a sports player. You played basketball, you played football, and you're actually in the Hall of Fame at your high school. Yeah, I played uh, football and basketball at Holy Name, Holy Name High School in Parma Heights, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland. And uh, that our football team that year, I was a wide receiver. We went to the state playoffs, which is, you know, that's a big deal. Getting, we won our division, got to the states, uh, and we lost in the first round, but we still got there. In fact, the quarterback that beat us, Larry Wonky, mm -hmm. I think he became Mr. Irrelevant, you know, the last player drafted in the mm -hmm. NFL. He went to Pitt and then went left there and went somewhere else, but he was at least drafted in the NFL, I believe. Uh, and then uh, I think that's the case. Check that out. But um, and then basketball, mm -hmm. we went to when I was there, we went to the district uh, championship game for the first time in 14 years. So I had a nice career there, um, played in the city all-star game in Cleveland where they brought the best uh, senior basketball players from throughout the, the area together, greater Cleveland and uh, played in that all-star game. So yeah, I had a nice little career and it was, it was great for them to induct me into the hall of fame. What was your most memorable game in basketball that you had throughout your career? It could be in college or high school. Oh man. Um, I mean, I had better games. I, I would say I'm a two two really come to mind. Um, my senior year, mm -hmm. we were in the district tournament, and we were playing the team that was. They were ranked in the top five in the area, Strongsville, and uh, I think they had only lost like one game that that season, if that, and we upset them in the uh in the district like semis mm -hmm. and uh i think i had 15 points like four assists six assists something like that and then we played we won that you know everybody was expecting them to be in the championship against saint ignatius i don't know if you heard of saint ignatius but they became this right they were a powerhouse in the city and the state in football when I was there and basketball. But then a couple years after I graduated, they became one of the top handful of football programs in the country. Um, and so they had a gr great basketball team that year and we played them in the district championship, packed, packed house. Rick Majerus, who used to coach Marquette, the late Mick Rick Majerus, he was there recruiting one of their players and um, they were up 22 to five on us, right? In the mm -hmm. first quarter or early in the second quarter, it seemed like it was over. And we, we came back and uh, we ended up losing by a point. That's a and, heartbreaker. Uh, yeah, one point. We won that, we would have been in the, in the regionals. But yeah, those two games, like I said, I, I, and I had good games, both games, mm -hmm. um, but those two stick out just because of the, the impact of those games and uh, the stage. From being an athlete, where did the passion of sports writing come in? Because you could have chose probably to go into the NBA or the NFL if you wanted to. Well, I certainly couldn't have chose to go there as a player. Uh, <laughs> I Because uh, I would have chose that. That was my dream like a lot of kids growing up. But one thing I tell young people is, look, yeah, so many young men, particularly, want to be a pro football or basketball or baseball player. And if you don't make it on the field as an athlete, you can still have a career 
in or around professional sports in various ways, journalism, broadcasting, uh, training, nutrition, uh, coaching, uh, marketing, um, being a sports agent. I mean, it, it goes on and on. But the one thing you need for most of those fields is an education. So even if, as you're seeking your dream of becoming a pro athlete, make sure you hit the books and do well in class and, and get your grades straight because then you can still have a career in sports. And I gotta be honest, I mean, I'm not gonna sit here and say I would not have wanted to be a professional athlete, but there are a lot of times I feel like, man, it, it's worked out better this way, mm -hmm. you know? Cause I, I have this career for 30, 40 years, you know? Um, and I'm not banged up and <laughs> I enjoy my lifestyle. And, you know, I've been at every, I've been at every major event you could name the Super Bowl, the World Series, the baseball all-star game, the NBA all-star game, the NBA finals, like on and on. And so I've really been blessed, traveled around the world, Africa, Spain, uh, France, England, Italy, uh, Kuwait covering the game of basketball, every major city in the United States. So it's been really great. And so again, if you're an aspiring athlete, know that there are other options out there for you, even if you don't make it as an athlete. But what happened for me was um, my sophomore year in college, I looked around at my teammates mm -hmm. and my friends and all of them seemed to know what they wanted to do with their career. Well, someone to be engineer, someone to, become medical doctors, someone to go to law school, some were going to public policy school, whatever it may have been. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I got scared and I was like, man, I got two and a half years left to figure out what I want to do so I can become a responsible adult, you know, in a couple of years, take care of myself. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with a formula, which was something I enjoyed, which was sports plus something I was gifted at, which was writing. Like I always had the gift of writing. I used to write rhymes. I started writing rhymes when I was like nine years old, when I first heard Rapper's Delight, <laughs> Sugar Hill oh, Gang. Oh, Sugar Hill Gang. <laughs> but that actually helped my writing ability because it increased my vocabulary. Mm -hmm. I was looking in the, the, the thesaurus for words and um, it increased my ability to tell a story with transitions and in the flow. And even I rapped in high school and college. So that got me comfortable in front of crowds and articulating. I mean, I wasn't no gangster rapper, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I learned how to articulate, you know, just all that. It, 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 it prepared me in a lot of ways. And so I took something I was gifted at plus something I enjoyed. And I said, let me try to become a sports writer. And fortunately enough, my, my grades were good. I did well in school. And uh, I was able to realize that dream. You got a BA in English. Yes. Yeah. Oberlin didn't have a journalism program. It was a liberal arts school. Mm -hmm. I did write some for the news school newspaper, um, but I was an English major. And uh, I got my big break the summer after my junior year. I had a summer internship with at the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which was the biggest newspaper in Cleveland in Ohio at the time. Mm -hmm. And so that was really my first, not my main introduction to sports writing. And I did well in that uh, and got better over the weeks. And when I graduated, they told me that they were going to hire me when I, you know, when I graduate, or they were going to hire me a year later when I graduated. And so uh, that was my first job outside, out of college. And I started off answering phones in the newsroom and then uh, progressed a few months later, moved on to covering high school sports. And then after about three or four years of covering high school sports, I moved up to the pros. And you actually became the beat writer and actually covering the Cavaliers. When was the first time that you saw LeBron James in person and it came to realization that this guy is gonna be the next biggest player? Well, I, I tell people this, I, I may have seen LeBron when he was a kid because I was in Akron. I worked, I, I left the plane dealer and went to the Akron Beacon Journal. Mm -hmm. And Akron's close to Cleveland, so I didn't even have to move. But I would go to summer tournaments in Akron 
that were actually thrown by a guy that was in LeBron's inner circle early in his career. And he was a friend of mine. And so these were big summer tournaments that, you know, were packed and a lot of people in Akron attended. And my guess is that LeBron was at one of those tournaments as like a little nine-year-old or something like that. <laughs> so I may have seen him as a little kid, right? But then uh, this person I'm talking about who was one of his mentors, when I left Akron and went to the New York Times, this was around 1999, 2000, something like that. This guy, we were talking on the phone and he said, hey man, we got the next big thing. We got the, we, we got the next Jordan here in Akron. And I'm like, oh, really? Like, where? Like, and in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, right. Like, come on, man. Akron, yeah, y'all producing the next one. <laughs> because, look, Ohio has produced great players. But Ohio is more of a football state. It's not like a basketball hotbed, right? No. Like New Jersey, New York, California, Florida, you know, and Chicago. And so I'm thinking... Yeah, all right. So I'm talking to him, like, so so was he playing national? They play AAU? He's like, yeah, man, he killing, he killing the best players in the country. Like, even if their team doesn't win, he's getting his, like, he's killing. And um, so I started following him a little, and then, of course, he begins to blow up. And um, so that's when I, you know, and then by the time I, I, I didn't meet LeBron personally, mm-hmm until, well, the first, I went to, I covered his first game for the New York Times. He played in Sacramento, and that's when the Kings were good. They had Chris Webber. I don't know if Webber might have been hurt that year, but Webber, Jason Williams, Mike Bibby, uh, Vadi Divash, they were a great team. One of the tops in the league. And LeBron had struggled in the preseason. And, um, so I went to cover that game and he was awesome. He had 27, I believe he had 27 points, uh, nine or seven rebounds, mm-hmm. assists, something like that, but he was great. And I remember I talked to Larry Bird, did a story the next day mm-hmm. off of talking to Larry Bird and Bird said, he said two things that were crazy. One, he said, if, if, if we're not talking about this guy as a surefire Hall of Famer within five years, then something went wrong. And then he said, he's the only player I ever saw who I thought could have went straight to the NBA after his junior year of high school. And so that's the first time I saw LeBron. I interviewed, I was in the scrum mm-hmm. interviewing him. And then I met him a couple maybe, maybe two years later. I was doing a story on him for ESPN, the magazine. Mm-hmm. And um, when I went, when I met him for that story, he was like, oh, I seen this dude, you know? And he was, he was a little guarded at first because mm-hmm. he had had a bad experience with ESPN, the magazine. But Maverick Carter, uh, I don't know if Rich Paul was there that day, but Randy Mims was with him and Rant Maverick and some, maybe a bodyguard or two. Mm-hmm. But then over time, we got to know each other and uh, we became real cool. And I haven't seen him in a while. You know, I don't get out to games as much anymore because I'm always in studio. Um, But I got to know him pretty well early in his career. And that's great that you did because that's that's history for you and sports. You cover the New York Times, you mentioned before, the the Nets and the Knicks. I agree with your your take on on Giannis when you tweeted about that on Twitter because – he didn't have all these players around him. LeBron and KD, they go to all these super teams and they win. And if you look at LeBron now, he just got Russell Westbrook here. Right. Now he did win it and, you know, and, and people push back, well, well, him and AD, that wasn't a super team. And and I get that. I, I will admit, I think a super team is three. It's a mm-hmm. trio. But, so I wouldn't call them a super team. But there's another element to the super team which is players generating it and players saying, picking, I want to play with this star and I want to, you know what I mean? And so AD forcing his way to the Lakers, um, that with the help of LeBron's agent and his agent too, the same agent, 
But that is, you know, that's a quality of a super team, you know, versus, hey, this is the play. These are the players I got. I got to go get busy with these dudes, you know. But um, now you're right. Now they are a super team. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see if uh, if they can if they can win it. And back in 2016, people forget too that if it wasn't for Kyrie Irving's shot in the finals and the game against the Warriors, if he didn't make that three pointer, who knows if they would have won that game? Yeah, I mean the game was tied at that time. Mm-hmm. Nobody had scored in a while. Um, but Kyrie, that's that's one of the biggest shots in NBA history. Yeah. The other another one is the Ray Allen shot. Yeah, uh, when when they played for the Heat. Yeah, and so um, but LeBron obviously was tremendous in both of those games both of those series and had of course probably the most iconic block or even defensive play in the history of the league and so uh he contributed a little bit to that those championships too he did (laughs) not the crucial plays though not the real crucial shots well i would say crucial plays not crucial shots to play the last shot but that's where see i think right now i think there's too much emphasis on the last shot or who takes the last shot. I mean, Michael Jordan, I mean, two of his, two of the biggest plays in his career, he didn't take the last shot. You know, Steve Kerr, John Paxton. um, And even like back in the day, it wasn't like the best player has to take the last shot. And if he doesn't, shame on him, he's not clutch. Back in the day, you ran a play with options. Yeah. So if, if this first option isn't here, we got this to go to. Magic Johnson's famous junior, junior sky hook, 1987, in the finals against Boston. Magic told me himself he was the third option on that play. Or James Worthy was the first. Above Kareem and Magic, who were better players, Kareem was the second. And Magic was third, but it wasn't like that was a blow or an insult to Magic or Kareem. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, we ran a good play we thought could work, you know? And so um, I think that's how we need to look. That's the better way to look at it than to give it to one dude and say, go get it, big fella. <laughs> you saw Brooklyn did that with Durant. And not it's not against Durant because it, it was a tough, I, I mean, I ain't even like them putting him in that position. But in game seven against Milwaukee in overtime, I mean, they he were just it. the ball and saying, go one on five, man. And that was a bad spot to put anybody in. And so um, I think people, coaches need to rethink that when they're looking at these end of the game scenarios. Mm-hmm. With the Knicks, as you covered them when you were with the New York Times James Dolan was obviously tied up in a broom closet this year. He didn't do anything that made the players angry or anything to his legends. Do you think that the stars are finally going to come here? Because I feel as though as Nick fans, we're all fools. We always buy into the news that we hear going around on Twitter and in the press. Do you, do you feel as though that this is the year finally now that we have Tom Thibodeau, we've established a winning culture that players will actually come here? Well, this isn't the year because there just aren't that many players. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not a good free agent summer. Um, I mean, yeah, Kawhi, could be free, but I don't expect him to move. Um, And I think he'll resign with the Clippers. Um, Damian Lillard, is it possible he forces his way to New York? Possible. He does like New York from what I'm told. Um, But I, I, I think, I think he'll go back to Portland for a year. Um, and then if they don't go deeper in the playoffs, ne- next offseason is when he'll be moved or and want to move. And New York's a possibility. Mm-hmm. But this year, they need to be wise with their money. They need to sign guys to smaller contracts, maybe a year with this option for the second year. Um, because there just aren't that many big game changers out there. Yeah. Uh, I don't Chris Paul, I think, gonna stay in Phoenix. And um so they just need to be wise. But going forward, maybe we'll see, you know, um, if they can get that big guy. But man, they've been they have been left at the altar so many times. Um, and so who knows if if they'll their luck will turn in the future. Yeah. I just don't get why players don't want to play here, especially when you look at the the net success this year. The Knicks were still the hottest thing in New York City. 
Right, right. Yeah, I mean, look, here's the thing, and, and I didn't grow up in New York. Mm -hmm. I'm from uh, the Midwest, man. I moved around a lot as a kid. I was born in the South, raised in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, and when I moved, so when I moved to New York to cover the Nets in 1988, for 1998 for the New York Times, and then I started covering the Knicks a couple years later, I was shocked when I got here to New York and everybody, the media in New York, all thought that everybody wanted to play for the Knicks. I was shocked at how big New Yorkers thought the Knicks were. And I remember whether it was Chris Webber, Grant Hill, whoever was a free agent, if there was a big time free agent, the media thought he was coming to New York. Even if the Knicks didn't have money, they were like, well, figure out a way to legal, figure out a way, something. They felt that guy was coming to New York. Never mind that most of those guys didn't even want to come to New York. Yeah. But that was how New Yorkers felt. And I had to tell New Yorkers, I'm, I'm like, look, the New York Knicks are not the LA Lakers. They are not the Dallas Cowboys. They are not the New York Yankees. They are not a national team. They are not a national treasure. Me as a kid who loved basketball growing up in the Midwest, the Knicks were like the 12th team I thought of. <laughs> I can't, I'm, when I thought about the yeah. NBA, Lakers, Celtics, 76ers, uh, the Blazers, the Spurs, the Pistons, the Bulls. I mean, there were several teams that were just better than the Knicks year in, year out mm -hmm. that you thought of before the Knicks. Mm -hmm. And so I was baffled, like, dudes growing <laughs> up in Ohio, growing up in the South, growing up in California, they ain't growing up like, yo, I want to play for the Knicks one day. No, they growing up thinking I want to play for the Lakers. Yeah. <laughs> they growing up thinking I want to play for the Yankees. I want to play for the Cowboys. Man, ain't nobody thinking of the Knicks like that. And, and it's been borne out. All these free agents. The Knicks are the Knicks. The Knicks are another team. Period. Yeah. That's it. I hate to break it to you because I know you're a New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> They're just another basketball team. And all the players are like, yo, I love playing at the Garden. And they do. Yeah. For a night twice a year, three yeah. times a year, whatever. And the thing that makes the garden great is it's like a stage is lit up. The, the audience, the, the crowd is dark. There's celebrities, rappers in the front row. All that's fun. But that don't change the fact of the Knicks are just another NBA team. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I get, I get what and you're saying. Yours, and I always say it too, man. Look, I grew up to all the New York playgrounds. Kareem was from New York. Mm -hmm. Dr. J, street ball, Rucker, all that. Them days are over, man. Yeah. New York does not, I think New Jersey's better than New York as far as producing young basketball talent. Because mm -hmm. New York, it's been a long time, man, since they produced I mean, they've got like Meta World Peace, mm -hmm. Elton Brand, who's from upstate, but you know, uh, Stefan Marbury, Lance Stevenson, but Steph, Stefan, Lance, Meta, they were very good NBA players, particularly Steph, Stefan, and Meta, mm -hmm. but none of them, Lamar Odom, they didn't live up to their, as great as they were, every, Every single one of those dudes, except Lance, had Hall of Fame ability yeah. and potential. None of them's going to be in the Hall of Fame. And Lance was viewed as that. Lance was viewed as like one of the top five players in the country coming out of high school. But what it was is they all got nice one-on-one -on -one games. But the street ball, the best young players today, man, aren't growing up playing on the streets. No. They're growing up with personal trainers. They're growing up playing AAU. They're not playing on the playgrounds that much anymore, if at all. Who got
got the bad who got who got the baddest street game in the in the NBA right now? I would say Kawhi. Really? Yeah. Kyrie Irving. You think Kyrie? Well, with the handles. With that handle finishing at the rim, Kyrie. Kyrie from the suburbs of New Jersey. Kyrie grew up down the street from where I live right now. (laughs) I played with Kyrie's dad in leagues. Kyrie, I played with Kyrie. He's like eighth grade. He from the suburbs. Now I know his dad's take him in the city. Get your get that heart. Work on your game. But Kyrie grew up in the suburbs, and he got the best street game in the league. Best handle ever. The I'll game, give it to you because of the handles. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the finishing at the rim. And the finishing at the rim. That dude got it all offensively. Yeah. And someone in the league told me this a few years ago, about almost a decade ago. He said basketball has become a suburban sport, a suburban game. And because now, like I said, the best players are growing up with personal trainers. Kyrie, Kyrie's from the suburbs. Carl Anthony Towns from the suburbs. Uh, who else? Uh, ben Simmons is a suburban kid. I mean, he's from Australia. Um, hey, Kobe was a suburban kid. Uh, Michael Jordan might have been. I mean, Wilmington, North Carolina, you know, like a lot of the top players, particularly these players coming up now um it's a different it's different man and so new york uh unfortunately the guys have had other things that have kept them from fulfilling their potential but um yeah man i i, I argue with michael rapaport about his, this it ain't the mecca no more of basketball you can say <laughs> that i go along I'll, I'll humor you but it ain't the mecca no more I mean, no, if it, no, but I agree because if it was, all these players would be coming here. They avoid coming it here, year. or they'd be producing the best. Like yeah. I said, Kareem, Dr. J, they'd be producing the best players, you know. And now New Jersey's producing better players than New York. Yeah, and and several other cities are too, you know. Yeah, you got that right. And I wasn't a fan of the Knicks draft picks this year, trading them away, trading back. Quentin Grimes, Miles McBride. People are like, oh, great pick, great pick. Let's see what happens because everyone said Obi Toppin was going to be this great player. And he was he was a bust last year. We got to admit it. We can give him his sophomore year. Let's see what happens his sophomore year. But Emmanuel Quickly was the better pick. Yeah, I mean, Quickly was their best rookie. There's yeah. no doubt about that. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it, it's unfortunate. It, it, I don't want to say it's unfortunate for Knicks fans because a lot of this is luck. Right. And if they think if they and RJ Bear was okay, but if they had gotten the second pick or the first, of course, but the first or second pick instead of the third, just one pick higher, they would have either John Morant or Zion Williamson. And now you're looking at an entirely different future for this team. And look, maybe they'll get one of those guys or somebody else in free agency. Yeah. And obviously that's their hope. But right now, you know, they don't have that guy. No, they don't. You mentioned before that you were rapping in high school and college. Who are some of your favorite MCs growing up? Man, I mean, I go back to the beginnings of hip hop. And I was in, I was in, uh, I grew up in the Midwest, as I said. But around the late, early 80s, I was living in Syracuse. And so I was, at that time, man, hip hop was like regional. Like you were hearing stuff in New York that they weren't getting in other parts of the country. You know, um, there were some songs that were national, but a lot of it was underground or not national. But my favorite MCs growing up, you know, obviously uh, LL, you know, was, was the baddest MC in the mid eighties, um, Rakim, uh, one of my favorites all time, probably my favorite all time is Karras one. Okay. Um, I like the New York East coast style best, you know, the boom bap. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the public enemy, big daddy came, um, obviously, you know, his story, I mean, run DMC was just, you know, they changed hip hop. They did before, before Run DMC. 
you know, rappers was wearing costumes and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with the big rope chains. Yeah, with well, they Run DMC still did that, yeah. but but Run DMC when they they came out like in sweatsuits. Mm-hmm, the like, this is how we we are. This is how we walk down the street. This is you know sweatsuits, the leather jackets, no no costumes, no not like. You look, go look at uh, one of my favorites, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Look at some of their albums from back in the day. They were wearing all, t- Melly Mel had like straps and leather and yeah. <laughs> and, and Run DMC was just like, this is our everyday gear, right? And that changed hip hop because from that point on, that's how the rappers just like was dressing. This is how we roll in everyday gear. And um and they helped make it hard, and then LL made it hard. You know, it was kind of disco before that. Treacherous Three and, you know, groups like that. That were hot, man. I love those groups, Sugar Hill Gang and all that. Yeah. But, yeah, the, some of those late 80s rappers I mentioned, I think Nas is one of the greatest ever with his lyricism. Mm-hmm. 100%. Um, yeah. Uh, so Biggie skills was just... His, the, the combination of his his skills, his flow, his voice, yeah, his flow. I mean, that dude was phenomenal. And uh, so, yeah, I'm I'm more in the East Coast rap. Not that there aren't weren't great West Coast rhymers, and uh, you know their music they made was dope. But I, I'm more into the East Coast style of hip hop. I like that you said KRS One. He was great with Boogie Down Productions, Big Daddy Kane, a part of the Juice Crew. Cool G Rap was another great one. Oh yeah, yeah. I like KRS One, man. I mean, I love KRS One. Like I said, he's probably my favorite rapper um, of all time. And uh, yeah, yeah, he's still out there doing it too. Yeah, he is. <laughs> but hip hop today is a dumpster fire. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I, I gotta be. I, I mean, it, it really is. It's a lot different. And let's face. Look, when I was coming up, the best hip hop. Like most hip hop was played on the radio. Mm-hmm. Like if it wasn't played during the day, there were mix shows where they would mix in and you hear all the all the hip hop. Now, and I get it because the genres become so big, but now you don't hear hip hop is so big that I don't think you hear the best hip hop on the radio. No, you don't. Like you just hear whatever the labels want you to play. And it might be the 12 or 15 songs that they want to make hot. It's not the best MCs aren't on the radio necessarily anymore. Not that like Drake and Kendrick, they're great MCs and all mm-hmm. that. But now, man, it's these underground you cats that you never really hear on mainstream that's got, you know, the best flows and, you know, these cats doing it the underground style. And so, um, I guess it's just the nature of the beast. To be honest, you can't put all the great hip hop on the radio anymore because it's too much. Yeah. You know, but, um, you know, it, it is what it is. Yeah. At least there's, you know, now the way things are, a lot of these cats can get their stuff out without a label and all that stuff. And so, um, yeah, but, but it was different back in the day. Yeah, it definitely was. But Fox Sports won. The odd couple, people can tune in. You and Rob Parker, people could tune in there. You can catch you on Undisputed with Skip and Shannon. Yeah, we uh the odd couples on Monday through Friday, seven to ten Eastern time, four to seven Pacific. If if they don't have Fox Sports Radio in your city, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't think they do in New York, but you can catch us on Sirius XM Channel eighty three, the iHeart Radio app, uh, or Fox Sports Radio. Uh, and then, like you said, during the day. I'm on all our shows, Undisputed, The Herd, First Things First, and Speak for Yourself. So um, that's where you can catch a brother. That's right. And throughout your time in the media world, who's the most difficult debater that you debated with in sports? Because you debated with all Stephen A. Smith, Skip and Shannon. Who's the, the toughest one to go against? I don't think there's a tough, when I say it's, you know, like there's nobody that baffles you. Or, <laughs> oh, man, I can't combat what he's saying. Because, you know, when you step into this business and you step onto the – when you go on the show, you better be ready. Yeah. Like, you you better know your, your stuff. You better do your homework. 
Um, I mean, I think obviously Skip is great in that Skip is always going to be able to defend his point. Even if you disagree with it, even if you think it's ludicrous, he's going to have an argument, you know, and you, you can combat it, but he's going, and that's the thing. You have to be able to back up your point. And I remember like when first things first or first take first started and, you know, you get the rappers and people that, oh, I want Skip. They want to get on there with Skip and defend LeBron or whatever it may be. And generally what will happen is that rapper, they got their first salvo. And then Skip goes back at them. And then they don't have anything else. You know what I mean? And then they just repeating their same old points. Like you have to be, you have to have different layers to your argument. And you have to be able to go at it, you know, many levels. And um, so Skip's great. Nick Wright, my man at First Things First, he's great. He's he's knowledgeable. He's fun to go at it with. Um, Stephen A, of course. I haven't debated a lot with Stephen, Stephen A. I've been on some shows where we went at it. But he's obviously, you know, like really like one of a kind. I mean, Stephen A, I know that's a, he's got that New York, you know, he's just a New Yorker. And it comes out in, in who he is, his attitude and everything. But he's like one of a kind in sports media, man. And uh, you got to give him his credit. Um, I think Shannon Sharp's really done a great Mm -hmm. job, you know, making that transition from the great athlete to, you know, being a great debater. And um, I think my man Kendrick Perkins is making a little name for himself. And uh, but it's great to see the athletes, Jalen Rose, a lot of them step up and make it in this space. but yeah, man, I would say to all the young cats out there, you got to know your stuff. Yeah. You know, if you want to debate everybody, um, you know, I know a lot of people look at us on TV and they say, man, I, I could be up there. I got an opinion, you know, and it's true. Everybody has an opinion. But Stephen A. Smith put it so well, maybe a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And he was like, everybody can have an opinion. And he said, that right now, the opinion is the thing. But you have to ha- earn the credibility where people care about your opinion. And that's the difference. Credibility, yeah. People, yeah, because anybody can get up there and, and argue their, their point or say that they have a what they think about LeBron or Michael Jordan or whatever. But do people care? Yeah. So if you look at the guys that are doing it, they're either ex-athletes, so they have credibility from that. Or like myself, Rob Parker, Skip Bayless, Stephen A. We were reporters. We covered the leagues. We talked to the coaches, talked to the players, broke stories, reported on the games. That's credibility. Because people know we put in years of service. And then the third way is that if you come out of school and you start right away in the opinion field where through radio mainly like you 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 started out in radio and you maybe you started out in a small market and you worked your way up to bigger markets but you develop your credibility like that like Nick Wright as far as i know was never a beat reporter yeah no but he started out in radio and developed his voice and and his opinions and he gained his credibility that way by having radio shows. And so those are really the three ways to do it. Um, but you got to have the credibility where people give two cents about what you say about this trade or that player or whatever it is. Yeah. Last topic, I want to bring this up to you. And I think it's important if if you could speak on it, because the, there's been this trend recently, that everything with politics and things going on in the world, the George Floyd incident that... I feel as though white people in sports media have become too comfortable with, I'd say, exposing their racial views. And I've noticed it a lot, especially in the New York radio areas, especially with Boomer Esiason and Giannotti there on WFAN. They've been things that they say on the radio. I noticed that it could be subtle to people listening where they go at people who are from low-income housing, different things where – this can offend listeners. Do you notice that? Like when you certain people that even people that you've worked with in the past, that there tend to be some 
overtones racially in sports media? I haven't heard what uh, Isaias and Boomer and those guys have said. Um, but I just think, I don't think it's particular to sports media. Mm-hmm. I think it's just America in general. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of white males in general. Um, because let's face it, whites have had dominance in this country ever since its inception before it, it was actually a country yeah uh, whites have dominated and so as we're trying to move toward equality uh, for a lot of whites particularly men who really had the dominance um that can be an uncomfortable position even if they some for some it's conscious that I want to remain the dominant group of people in this country. And for others, it's unconscious. But it's just the fact that when you grew up and everything you've seen and every situation and experience you've been in, you've been the dominant group. And so if you, I've been in press rooms where there've been 50 people and maybe five of them were African-American and some of the white guys. And, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying they felt this way. Some of the white guys felt like the, the black guys are taking over because it's five out of 50. You know, why? Because they're used, when they were coming up, it was none. <laughs> it might've been one out of 50. And so they're, some for, for a lot of whites, it's just they've never, you know, they're not used to equality. They're used to dominance. Um, and for some, it's that. So for them, it's just un, they're not even used to it. Others, they recognize it, but they want the dominance. They still want the dominance. And so they don't like it, what's happening. Um, so I think that's, and like I said, I don't think that's particular to sports media. I think it's true in all media, and I think it's true in America in general. And that's why, that's one reason why there's such a polarization in the country. I mean, you know, there's this big debate now about critical race theory and should it be taught in the schools. And uh, in Texas, they're really bugging where they they don't even want, they're not, they, it's not mandatory to teach. They just passed something where it's not mandatory to teach that the Ku Klux Klan was morally wrong. It's not mandatory to teach Martin Luther King and what he did with the civil rights movement, which is ridiculous. Yeah, that is. Because those things are just objective history. And that shows you the the levels to which some people are willing to go to maintain white dominance. Mm -hmm. Um, And my, my thing is, look, that's one of the reasons the country is so polarized because I think most white Americans um, don't grow up learning true American history. And so they grow up learning that uh, everything about America was great. And it's been this awesome, great country with freedom and justice for all and, and all that stuff. And that's just not the case. Now, that doesn't mean we have to hate America. I'm African-American, well-versed in African-American history and know the tragedies that the oppression, the discrimination that African-American people have faced in this country. And yet I'm still a a proud American and love my country, Um, but I know it's not perfect. I love my family and I know my family's not perfect. And there have been things done wrong within my family. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's how white Americans need to understand criticism of America's past does not mean we have to hate the country. It just means that, like Martin Luther King said, we want America to be true to what it said on paper. And um, so with whites, with so many whites growing up with a false view of American history, Mm -hmm. that's why we can't unify that's why we can't get past this racial issue because they have a view that what's the problem? Yeah. 
great. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, okay, it's a little racism. We get that. But for the most part, it's been great. And when you really, they're mad about the true history. And so we're Black Americans and some white Americans who understand the situation, they're coming at it from one perspective. And many white Americans who really don't know true American history are looking at it from a totally different view. And so if we're not even, we're not even, we're not even agreeing on the problem, then how can we come to a solution? And too many whites don't even agree on the problem. They'll, they'll admit there's racism and we gotta get over it, but they're really not willing to go deep and see really what the issue is. And so that's why the country's so polarized and um, racially, it's just, a, it's just a problem. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And then when you think of the, the media people that say just shut up and dribble, I feel as though these people in the media only care about black people if they're athletes or they're successful, because then when something else is coming out of their mouth, they're taking a crap on black people. No, that's very true. And, and that's why I think that it's important for African-American athletes and others in the public eye to speak out about these issues, because <laughs> I say it about our athletes. It's unfortunate, but it's, I think it's the reality. Black American athletes are the most, the wealthiest African-Americans, the most well-connected African-Americans when it comes to powerful people in the country, whether it's politicians, corporate titans, wealthy African-American or wealthy people in America in general. African-American athletes are, have, are the most connected to them because McDonald's wants that athlete. Nike wants that athlete. Um, Coca-Cola wants that athlete. So you're connected to these major corporations. And then they're the most beloved and they're the most irreplaceable African-Americans in the country. See, LeBron James can say whatever he wants because he's irreplaceable. Yep. You know, uh, Patrick Mahomes can say whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. He's irreplaceable. If Pat Mahomes did what Colin Kaepernick did, you think he'd be out of the league? No. Heck he not. No. Right? It wouldn't know. It wouldn't have even been a big deal or it would have become a trend or something. Kaepernick was replaceable because he was no longer a star. He was no longer that good. Yeah. Right? He was a second stringer, which to me made his what he did more courageous. Mm -hmm. um, but that's why I think the athletes have to come speak out. And I'm telling you, uh, as much as I love and respect and I'm grateful for the civil rights movement and all the African-Americans and white Americans and others who fought for equality in this country. Um, if, it, if it weren't for black athletes, I don't even mean speaking out. I just mean being great. Uh, black Americans would not be as far along in this country as we are. Yeah. Like African-American dominance of sports has endeared African-Americans to some degree to mainstream white America because white men love sports. Yep. And so if you grow up loving football, baseball, or basketball in this country, guess what? Your heroes in many cases are going to be black. Your idols are going to be black. The people you emulate and try to play with and look up to in sports are going to be black. And so that to some degree has endeared black Americans to whites. But to your point, it a lot of times that doesn't translate from the superstar athlete to the average African American who can't run a four or five forty or dunk a basketball. And so, but it has trickled down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's very, very responsible. And I would throw in on a lower level. Mm -hmm. entertainment black comedians rappers black actors black rappers yeah the musicians all of that has endeared african-americans a little more to mainstream america native americans haven't had that impact on american culture that black americans have mm -hmm. and so you don't they don't they're not getting the justice even to the degree that black americans get I mean, they just, the Indians just changed their name. 
Native Americans, many, now I know there's some that didn't think it was offensive, but Native Americans have been protesting against that name for, for, for decades. Yep, same with Washington. Right, same with, with the football. Redskins or yep. Washington. Like, and that those names are racial epithets, particularly the Redskins name to a lot of Native Americans. That would be like having the Washington Sambos or something. Yeah. And that would never fly, but it, it should fly for all people, even if they aren't powerful. Because if you really have opened up your mind and are not racist or not prejudiced, then you wouldn't just uh, respond to these situations when there's pressure put on you or because Black Americans have some, some degree of success in this society and, and some degree of power. You would do it even for the Native Americans who don't really have that much power in this country. You know, or the other groups that are marginalized that really don't have the numbers or the power. And so, um, yeah, man, I, I just think it's so important to uh, for the true history to be understood and taught because then that can change people's mentalities and then we can maybe get to some solutions. Yeah, I agree. I think this was an important discussion that I wanted to address because it's, I just wanted to get it off my chest. It's been eating at me for months and since I've been hearing some of the things on WFAN in the morning, and I wanted to share that with you and make sure we speak out about these things. But Chris Broussard, I appreciate your time. I thank you for coming on the show. Is there anything else you want to let the listeners know that people can connect with your King movement, especially through their website and contact you on social media? Do you have any upcoming announcements that you have to make with the movement or anything in sports in general with your shows? Yeah, I would just say if you want to learn more about the King Movement, check us out at kingmovement.com or you can email us at king at kingmovement.com and we're on social media, Instagram, Twitter at those addresses. Um, myself, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Broussard, Instagram, Chris Broussard 68. And on, uh, if I speak at corporations, mm -hmm. uh, colleges, schools, churches around the country so if you're interested in having me speak uh either virtually or in person you can go to my website chrisbroussardspeaks.com chrisbroussardspeaks.com and uh, you can book me there so uh those are the ways that people can reach me and um you know i'd love to come speak at your your organization or whatever yes for sure. Thank you, Chris Broussard. Your true inspiration. Keep giving us that real sports talk that we love every day. And I want you to enjoy the rest of your day and, and take care and stay safe. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And keep up the good work, man. And, and good luck in your uh, career endeavors. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. All right, bro. Peace. Yeah. Peace.